0: What's up, my Impact Theory family? It's Tom Bilyeu, and I want to take a moment to express my heartfelt gratitude to you guys, our incredible listeners. Your support, your feedback, your unwavering commitment to your own growth inspires and drives us every day. And I want you guys to know how important you are to all of us here, especially me. And for those voracious listeners, you know who you are, I've got something really exciting to share with you. If you're truly dedicated to achieving greatness, check out the Extra Impact Impact subscription channel exclusively on Apple Podcasts and Supercast. With the Extra Impact subscription, you'll get all new episodes delivered ad-free, exclusive access to bonus content including keynote speeches, AMAs, weekly motivation, and previously unreleased episodes. And you'll also have subscriber-only access to five additional podcast playlists with hundreds of archived Impact Theory episodes curated into themes to help you stream Line, your transformation journey. So if you're ready to take your personal growth journey to the next level, head over to Apple Podcasts, Supercast, or check the links in the show notes and subscribe to the Extra Impact subscription. It's your key to unlocking the greatness within you. Thank you guys again so much for being a part of this incredible community. Remember, the world needs more people that have come alive, double down on your own improvement, and you will be shocked at how far you can go. All right. Until next time, my friends be legendary. Dr. Jennifer. Hay, thank you so much for joining me. i super excited to get this chance to talk to you.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited too.
0: Awesome. So this is a pretty weird time to be in the medical field. Uh, I see your scrubs hanging behind you. Are you, are you more, um, at Columbia university, the school, or are you more at the actual hospital?
1: Yeah. So we have a medical center that's associated with our university, uh, Columbia University Medical Center. And uh, that's where I had spent most of my COVID days. (laughs) And is it still pretty hardcore?
0: Is it pretty hardcore COVID there still?
1: You know, it's actually calmed down a bit a lot. I would say, you know, it was pretty intense there for a while. I I had never seen anything like it. And, And frankly, I didn't think that any of my mentors and older doctors that I, you know, have worked with for so many years had seen anything like it. It was really, um, it was pretty overwhelming. The entire hospital became, I would say, probably close to 80% COVID. Uh, Lots of floors had to pop up and turn into intensive care units to manage these patients. And one day, you know, I walked around and I suddenly saw that, you know, every ICU bed had two patients to a room Every operating room had four patients in a room, all on ventilators. And it just felt like the whole hospital was on a ventilator and everyone had the same exact disease. Everyone had COVID. And it was really, it was bizarre. It felt almost like what I would think war would feel like a bit, you know, where you have your teams and you trust your teams and um, you really depend on them to sort of get you through and support each other. And it was, it was, it was heavy.
0: Yeah. I'm that, that is, uh, something that everybody seemed to be super focused on in the beginning. I'd think that that story would have resonated. It would have been like front um, page news, somebody telling a story like that. Now I'm beginning to worry that either because of summer um, or just like the the climate where people have been pent up, bad things are happening to the economy. Obviously, what's gone on with the protesting that people are so fed up with so many things that now they're acting like um, the virus will give them a breather. But you're saying that we're not seeing the sort of explosive need at the hospital. What do you think is going on? Is it that it's summer months, it's vitamin D, it's sunlight, it's people being outdoors? Is it that the lockdown was actually effective? Is it that the virus is mutating? Like what, what do you, mm-hmm. if you had to hazard a guess, and I know that right now it would be a guess, but <laughs> uh, if you had to hazard a guess, like why are we, um, why are times getting better?
1: I think it's probably a couple of different things. One, I think that there was this latent period where we didn't know the virus was spreading between people and people were getting infected. And since we know that most people that get COVID have pretty mild symptoms and you know aren't going to be that, they, they probably thought they had the flu or a bad cold. And so they were home spreading and spreading it. And then we reached this just sort of massive number of people infected. And when you get to that many infected people, you're going to see a lot of people who need hospitalization and so it reached this sort of climax or pinnacle where suddenly the hospitals just couldn't manage it anymore but what's not going to happen is it's not going to just disappear and go away and it's not going away because it's sunny out and it it's it's still there you know the concern i think of people like fauci and other infectious disease doctors is that when we start being indoors more in closed spaces on the subways going back to work reopening that the spread is going to go up again Whether we'll ever have that moment we had, at least here in New York City, where it was literally like you had to choose who got a ventilator and who didn't and Mm -hmm. thousands of people dying every day. My hope is that that doesn't happen again, but that we will have to deal with COVID for the next year, chronically coming into our hospital and trying to minimize spread within the hospital, which I think we're doing a really good job.
0: And if this becomes something that we see every year, like a flu, um, how gnarly is this going to be like right now, man, I treat this shit like it is panic central. I don't let, um, people in my house, I am Mm -hmm. washing or wiping down all my groceries. It is a nightmare. Like, and I know everybody's Mm -hmm. going through this, but like what a pain in the ass to one, I don't even (laughs) want to go to the grocery store. Right. So I'm getting everything delivered, which miracle of miracles that we live in a time where that's possible, but I don't even want like, um, to go back to the office, even though like we have a cleaner that could come in and like be wiping all the surfaces and stuff. But it just seems like, man, anything that I can avoid, I want to, which was fine when I thought this was like a month or two months. But living with that like, elevated level of paranoia, I'm actually, one, not sure humans are capable of that. I think we will end up letting our guard down. I, I'm mm-hmm. already, I can feel myself getting a it's little happening. bit lax at the edges. Um, so what does this look like if it's really ongoing and it's just here cyclically every year?
1: Well, I think it, the, the, the hope is that you know viruses that spread the best and stay the best are generally not going to be viruses that kill you quickly. Because like Ebola, if you're going to have a 50% you know, death rate or mortality, the virus won't even be able to get to the next person you know, to find a new host. So things like influenza, all other coronaviruses, like the common cold, those things are mild. And so you give it to me, I give it to you every time. Nobody cares and it just kind of spreads around and people get sick and they get better. If this virus wants to stick around, it's, it may mutate into a less virulent form, which is usually what we see over time. Um, The other potential is vaccination. Now, whether vaccination will say you don't get it is unlikely. It's probably going to be more like a flu vaccine scenario where you get something and you get a milder version or you don't get quite as sick. And then that will also allow people to come out and to us to have, you know, some kind of herd immunity to this, which is really the goal. Um, But to achieve herd immunity before that would require millions of people to die. So we're buying our time, letting people get infected. I mean, people are still getting infected. We're still treating them. It's just that at least the hospitals can manage the intake. I want to reassure people in that really the people who die of COVID, for the most part, we've seen are in a much older age bracket or with a lot of other medical conditions. That doesn't mean I haven't seen people in their 30s with nothing wrong with them. So yes, you're right to think, oh my God what if I get COVID? I'm screwed. I could die. Like any of us could die, but you could also get H1N1 flu and die. So there is like this loss of memory that we forget that like you could die of the flu too, as a young, healthy person, it does happen. It's not common. I think probably COVID is worse than the regular flu, but it does happen.
0: I got the flu in January and it was so gnarly that by the end of it, I was like, Oh my God, like, this really can kill people. I was like, oh, this yeah. shit was real. I, oh, yeah. I've i never had something linger that long. Like I always think of being sick as a seven-day commitment. And so yeah. at day 10 to have still been like, yo, I just cannot get out of bed. This is crazy. And I had been lulled, but the common cold, the sort of average flu had lulled me into the sense of you get sick, you get better. And that it was a foregone conclusion that you get better. And then when it just wasn't going away, wasn't going away, wasn't going away. And I was coughing so much. I was like, man, I, I must be doing damage to my lung tissue. Like you can't cough like this and not mm-hmm. have some scarring or something. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that actually brings me back to COVID. So one of the things that made me so interested in talking to you because you're an expert in the heart is what is happening at the heart level? Like, does the normal flu do damage to the kind of tissues that we're seeing COVID doing? Or is this something totally different?
1: So that's a really good question. So the flu can actually cause a cardiomyopathy, which is an enlarged heart. It can cause a myocarditis. So it, it, but rare. You know, these are rare instances. But viruses causing damage to different parts of the body is nothing new. You know, we've seen it. What's really interesting about COVID or coronavirus, SARS-2, seems to have a really interesting um, effect on the vasculature. So the blood vessels that are sometimes microscopic in size in your lungs, in your brain, uh, in your skin, in your heart, in your kidneys. And that's why we're seeing this multi-organ systemic involvement in people often who get really sick. So we're seeing strokes, uh, heart attack, picture, myocarditis, inflammation, arrhythmias, enlarged hearts. We're seeing kidneys that fail and then eventually recover. Um, we're seeing terrible skin rashes. We're seeing a Kawasaki like syndrome in children, which is a a vasculature disorder. So I keep saying to my friends, you know, COVID is sort of like a contagious vasculitis and a vasculitis is an inflammation of the blood vessels. And usually it's more of an autoimmune process, but there's something about it that feels like a contagious vasculitis. Like you can catch it the way you catch a cold.
0: Mm. Yeah, that, that makes this a lot scarier to me if, um, (laughs) If I think about in terms of even people that aren't showing symptoms, and and I'd love to know if if this is actually true, but I heard that even people that don't show symptoms, if you were to x-ray the lungs or look at the heart, you actually do see tissue damage. And that is where this starts to get really scary because you want to think, well, I I didn't show symptoms. I'm young, I'm strong, whatever. And Mm -hmm. so I'm fine. But then you actually look at a tissue level. It's like, no, you're not fine. And every Ah. insult, and this is where, You know what a weird balance to have to it's like we're walking this razor's edge of protecting people from a health perspective but also not letting the economy just absolutely implode we've already seen sort of how much of a powder keg that can make things um but it's like if somebody else gets me sick and even if I don't show symptoms and in their mind, they're being sort of flippant about it. Well, I'm not around anybody who's old or whatever, you know, with underlying. Right, I'm young, I'll be fine. right. But that they're sort of edging me closer to the grave, because even if I was able to overcome it now, but it, it just it just chipped away at something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. where. Um, I get super nervous. Are there, one I'd love to know, like how profoundly are we talking, the average person, I get it. There's people that sort of at the high end is devastating, they obviously die, need a heart transplant, whatever. Um, And then there's people who, it's super, super minor. But like, if you had to sort of pick a median, uh, 50% fall below, 50% fall above, roughly where are we at?
1: I think that, I mean, okay, I'm seeing the worst of the worst. And I'm also seeing in my ICU, the people who make it to the ICU. And who we're going to try to really save, as opposed to a 90-year-old who says, "I don't want a breathing tube," right? So I'm, I'm self-selected to see a very specific group in the intensive care unit, so I'm which are sort of younger and possibly, you know, the ability to make it through. I, I while I realize that there may be long-term abnormalities that we're seeing in the tissue of people with more mild or moderate disease, I feel hopeful because it seems like the majority of people who recover are okay. And that there is a fraction, I would say, you know, maybe it's 10%, 15%, 20% who have some kind of ongoing issue, whether it's, you know, they have a little, like you said, if you get a CAT scan, their lungs might have scarring. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are not okay. They may have scar. I mean, we have people who have lung scarring who can go run a marathon. You know, that's not the end of your life. I mean, even the people who, ha- who had fulminant heart failure, I've seen recover. So it's still a work in progress to understand. I think that people who've had it and recovered and feel okay shouldn't be worried, but we don't have any long term data. We don't know for sure what happens to people um, two years after COVID. And that's the scary part. And I do think you have that's a what hypothesis.
0: Like, do you so if you were going to um this is what I always tell people to do in business, right? So you you have information. So you're obviously very informed about the heart. So you're, whatever hypothesis you're going to form is uh, what I call an informed hypothesis. Then you've also been dealing with COVID. So more information there. So obviously, all of it is incomplete, but you've got enough information. I'd say you'd be able to build an informed hypothesis. And so what do you think is happening biologically? Why is this virus weak- weakening the vasculature, for instance? Mm-hmm. And then coming out of it, um, what can people do? to improve themselves?
1: Right, well, first of all, the best thing you can do for yourself is to be as healthy as possible going into any of these things. So we know for a fact, based on data, that people with obesity, diabetes, hypertension, underlying heart problems, they're at higher risk. So we already know off the bat there. So if if you've been in quarantine for three months and you're gonna be home, this is the time to eat healthy, get in shape, get your risk factors under control. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. You know, you wanna be a healthy person. You can't control your age. Your age is what your age is, but I try to reassure people that are younger that it's you know, you're probably gonna be fine. It's it's okay. But if you get it, you have to take it seriously. Another issue is I think that in, in many instances there were so many people that got sick at once and their access to care was delayed. And if you are not feeling well, you know, instead of having that mentality like I don't wanna go to the hospital, everyone there has COVID, go to the hospital and get treatment. You know, and I think that that's going to really um, help a lot of recovery is earlier access to treatment instead of delayed and waiting. And also, people didn't know, right? They didn't really know they had COVID. What so is they the treatment now? The if, if I
0: were to come in and say, "Man, I really think that uh, this could be COVID," you test me. It is. Um, right. What What's the protocol? I don't need a ventilator. Let's say so. We're
1: we're let's say, okay. That. So let's say your oxygen's a little low and you're coughing a lot. So we would give you oxygen. Now there's a lot of data on steroids. There was a big study that came out about dexamethasone. I mean, steroids have been around forever, and they, they basically prevent an overwhelming immune response, right? So, so there's the going,
0: cytokine storm? Is that what
1: you're right, using? So the hope is that we'll decrease inflammation, decrease the cytokine storm. For whatever reason, c- coronavirus affects the blood vessels, walls, and the cells, and kind of causes them to pull apart and then leak. And when they leak like that, we call it, you know, capillary leak, the fluid extravasates into the space around. So you get fluid in your lungs, you get compromised tissue in the heart, in the kidney. And so steroids in some manner may or may not prevent that. You know, we use steroids to... fight normal vasculitis or inflammatory disorders, autoimmune diseases to suppress your own natural immune.
0: Whenever somebody asks me my tips for scaling a business, I always tell them, focus on efficiency. Because if you don't, you're gonna waste a lot of time and money spinning your wheels instead of making smart choices that will lead you to actually being able to grow. That's why I recommend you check out Shopify, which has everything you need to efficiently grow your business and take it to the next level. Every time I talk about Shopify, I'm so jealous that you guys have this all-in-one ready solution at your fingertips. It is so helpful. Shopify is a global commerce platform that makes it easy to sell online and in person at any and every stage of your business. Literally, wherever, whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered, just like the millions of businesses that rely on them every day. And Shopify's award-winning customer support is there to help you every step of the way. Plus, you get access to Shopify Magic, the AI-powered tool that will save you so much time and give you a huge leg up in growing your business. And with Shopify's super-efficient checkout process, which performs 36% better than competitors, you are primed for more sales just by using Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com impact, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com dot com slash impact right now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash impact. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. If you've got a lot of great ideas inside of you that could literally change the world, but you're keeping them locked away out of doubt or fear of failure please listen up. Within you is a unique blend of ideas, dreams, and passions that no one else possesses. And it's time to take action on them and put them out into the world with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it simple and straightforward to create a website, engage with your audience, and sell your ideas with their all-in-one website platform. Easily customize Squarespace templates so your website stands out and makes an impact. And get insights into your website and email performance with built-in analytics so you can be constantly improving your site, sales, and strategies to reach your goals. And I hope those goals are aggressive. I'm telling you guys, you can take action today, not next week or next month or next quarter, today. And get your ideas out out there with Squarespace. That's how you get into the physics of progress and get better. So head over right now to squarespace.com impact for a free 14-day trial and 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com impact. Please do not die with these ideas inside of you. Get out there, put them to the test. Go to squarespace.com slash impact impact
1: immune system and immune response so that's you know the theory behind that um you know it's going to be supportive care but i think the important thing about supportive care like giving you some steroids possibly or giving you uh, remdesivir which is an antiviral or giving you oxygen those are supportive treatments right none of those things are curing you from coronavirus so we want to support you as much as we can. We, and the, the issue is we don't want to let you languish and let your oxygenation get worse and you spiral into this worsening respiratory status. And that can happen if you're just sitting at home. I mean, my parents asked me, like, what should we buy? And I said, the best thing I think you should buy is like a pulse oximeter, which are those little things you stick on your finger and they tell you what your oxygen is. Because you might have an oxygen of saturation of 90% and not even know it. Uh, you might not even feel that short of breath. And then by the time you get to the hospital, you're at 70% and they're putting you on a breathing tube. So Mm. early intervention is better.
0: So going back to um, getting your underlying health conditions in order, what can people do to improve themselves?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that if you start to look at who's at risk and you look at something like high blood pressure, you know, like high blood pressure is a vascular disorder. It is a disorder of the blood vessels and the arterioles throughout your body. And what is it about that abnormality that predisposes you to increased severity or increased risk of getting this virus? Is it that your risk of getting the virus is the same as everybody else's, but that the effect on your blood vessels will be different? You know, probably. Um, Is it that, you know, the medications you're taking for your high blood pressure have some interaction? You know, we don't know. And what about obesity? You know, also a disorder where your vasculature may be compromised because, you know, you have uh, low exercise, you don't work out, your heart is not uh, you know in great shape. I mean, there's a million interplays, and I don't think it's going to be one simple path. I don't think it's going to be this causes this causes this. I think you know we see that some people get this overwhelming cytokine response, and their lungs are completely filled with fluid. I mean, white out on the CAT scan with COVID, and. I've seen an 80 year old lady come in and barely be sick and go home. You know, it's like, why? You know, you know, that's the million dollar question is why in one is it so different from another? And like all viruses, though, I will say, you know, there is a tolerance, right? The reason why, you know, the Spanish flu was so bad was that it was a variant we hadn't seen and nobody had any immunity. Like once we build up our own immune system's ability to fight this, we'll be better off the question is how do you do that in advance as sort of preventative and like I said the best we can offer is you know vitamin D, maybe take some zinc, although we don't know if that's for sure, you know, exercise, run, take good care of yourself, eat healthy foods. But those are all recommendations we give for people's heart anyway.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, and that's, I think, part of um, what I am really excited to see people actually get the information around, because what I hear in terms of what people should do for COVID is just what you should do, period. Like if the the overlap between do this for longevity and do this for covid border on 100% i totally um, and so that's why i'm trying to like even even when you look at um obesity diabetes heart disease um stroke alzheimers it's they they all start swirling around diet, quite frankly, diet, exercise, mm-hmm. certainly to an extent. But if you were mm-hmm. to press me to say, okay, you can only influence one diet or exercise. I wouldn't go to diet faster. I would go to diet like a thousandfold over mm-hmm. exercise. Exercise is rad, but at least in bodybuilding, I mm-hmm. always used to say, you can't out, you can't outrun a bad diet. So no matter how much cardio you're doing at the end of the day, you're still doing some level of damage from what you're eating. Um, so mm-hmm that's why like just trying to understand like at a cellular level where the breakdown is what's going on like i'm intrigued by vitamin d that's been the thing through this that i've been obsessive about so i'm very grateful that i live in los angeles right about now but i'm curious like as you look at the research that's coming out are people beginning to understand what's happening at a cellular level or are we still just flying blind
1: I mean, I think there is research coming out where they're trying to understand, you know, what kind of antibodies are made against COVID, what, what we're What would finding. that tell
0: us? I actually know well, nothing if we, about antibodies.
1: If we, right. So if you look at the plasma of people who have had coronavirus and you look at the kinds of antibodies they have and then you test those antibodies against uh, receptors that we know exist on the COVID virus. We're, they're finding that there are certain antibodies that completely eliminate the ability of COVID to you know, enter other cells. So you, know, you think about a virus, a virus comes in, it takes over your cell, it becomes like a hijacker and it makes that cell produce all this virus particle and then it spews it all out and then more viruses cruise around and uh, invade another uh, cell and take over that cell and produce tons of virus particles. And then the circulating virus itself then causes damage to all your body parts. So if you get a vaccine or that has an antibody or you know antibody therapy for COVID, you're going to want to give someone antibodies that literally, you know, block the receptor. They the, the cell expresses it, sits out on the front of the cell. You, the coronavirus comes along with its receptor and it's blocked, can't get in because this antibody won't let it get in. So you know this is the kind of things that we are looking at when we uh, try to understand how to stop it. I wanted to go back to
0: something you said earlier. You talked about the 90 year old patient that shows up and has a do not resuscitate. Um, mm-hmm. Being a, a physician at your level and your expertise, I'm sure puts you in touch with death a lot. Um, super curious to know how you think about end of life. Um, I feel like I may have some not widely held beliefs about end of life. I, I think that, God, this is going to sound weird. Um, I think that people may cling to being alive to a point that doesn't make sense. And from the outside mm-hmm. when you're watching it at the end and there's no joy to be had, um I someone that I cared about, I watched them die. It was so gnarly and mm-hmm. they were sort of in and out of consciousness and they at the at the very end, I actually I couldn't understand what they were fighting for and it was one of because it was it was a one-way street. It was cancer, like there was just nothing mm-hmm. left to be right, done. Right, it was the end. It was the end. And um, I so respected his mentality. Like he had this shirt that he wore all the time that said, can't stop, won't stop. And I was like, fuck yeah, man, I respect that. Like, that's rad. That is a great way to live. But if I'm honest and I were in his situation, I there is a point at which you go, "This is this is a fight I can't win. It's not like I can get to the other side of this and there's quality of life. So now it's like existing just for the sake of existing. Whereas I personally would rather um, tap out a little earlier in in a way that's a lot more peaceful. Um, and I'm curious, like how you see different people dealing with that. Do we deal with it the same here that people deal with it elsewhere? Um, Mm -hmm. you know, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Death is such an interesting topic. I mean, I think the, the way you, you perceive death changes as you age, right? And as you grow older and as you experience death in your own life, I think that our culture has a very strange relationship to death in the United States compared to some other cultures and how what there, there is this, like you you just pointed out this sort of relentless, like, I want everything done. I want everything done. I can't tell you how many people where I'm like, what are you doing? Like, this is actually like almost torture, like where we've, had to call ethics consults because the doctors feel uncomfortable prolonging life that the family Mm. wants prolonged. And yeah, do we have machines that can do these things and your loved one is alive, but they're not alive. You know, they're on 10 different machines. And as soon as you turn one of them off, they're dead, you know? So, I mean, a lot of places, especially, you know, countries that have socialized medicine, they don't, spend money like that at the end of life they will or they won't offer things like we don't have the resources to offer dialysis here this is a futile treatment to offer dialysis um, and so i think it's in part the the healthcare, um like industry's fault and because uh, we're like we can offer this and we can try this and let's try that and then and then part of it is the mentality like i have the i have the right to choose all these things for my loved one and i tell my patients sometimes when i'm doing end of life i say you know, you're not deciding whether your loved one lives or dies. Your loved one is going to die regardless of what you decide here. We're all going to die and they're going to die sooner. The question is, how do you want that death to be? Do you want it to be calm and peaceful or do you want to continue? And sometimes it's a process. It takes people a few days or weeks to kind of come around to understand it. But, you know, there are countries where, you know, people take their loved ones home and die in the home. And it's not scary. And it's not, you know, horrible. And they can even keep the body there and have like a night or two with the body. I mean, people do things totally differently in other cultures. And one of my mentors was always like, not everyone has to die in the intensive care unit. And it's so true. Like, there's a time when it's enough. But I mean, to your point, like the mentality of fighting, you know, I think it's so hard when I was younger and I was in training and I would see people die, I think I would have this very unemotional reaction as a resident because you would like run to these codes and, and people would live or die or, you know, see so many people die. And it felt very like robotic, like oh I'm gonna die. now as I got older and I'm like, hopefully not going to die soon. But like you start to think about it more. And when I feel like now when I see death more in the hospital, especially with, the, with COVID, I think like, wow, like that's it. Like that person is done. And like, that's a different, it feels different to me now. Like it feels more profound, but also like we don't always have to do everything. Like I feel very much about, you know, helping families try to get through the dying process in a way that's more manageable. And I think we really, it's starting to change. Like there's a whole new workforce of palliative care doctors and hospice trying to make death better. But I get, you know, death's scary because we don't know what happens. We don't know if and that's interesting. It. You're dead, you're I'm, dead. I'm,
0: I am not tripped out at all by yeah. not. No, 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 no. I'm tripped out by death to the point where I <laughs> want to live forever. And I mean that quite literally. Um, even though I think death. there are huge issues, if people were to live forever, I think that that oh. might actually be wildly problematic, but nonetheless, selfishly, I'm an asshole. I want it for myself. Uh, and get
1: bored. You wouldn't feel like no, no,
0: no, there's a book you must read. It's called Einstein's dreams. And it's this whole like short stories around, um, Time. And one of them is what if everybody lived forever? And the hypothesis of that story, which resonated with me so much, I think about it all the time, is the world would bifurcate into two types of people people that did nothing because there's always time to do it tomorrow, and then people who did everything because they could actually get good at everything they ever wanted to get good at. And I thought, oh my God, I fall into that camp. I'm so aggressive. And this is why death freaks me out. It's like, I am constantly running this thought experiment of like, yo, my time is finite. I I can only spend it in so many different ways, and that bothers me to a level I don't know how to articulate. The mere fact that the things that I find interesting and fascinating that juice me up, I can't do them all, and that that right. causes like this deep sense of unease. I can't even let myself think about it. So it's I always tell people, if you really? want to be successful in life, you're like you, you have can't, to think about
1: this. you will time. Like you won't have time to learn Spanish. Like you won't have time to like that
0: kind of stuff. 100%. So I, while I have built my life and my psychology around learning and that's it, not knowing, not being, I get rewarded all the time for being something. And I try like not to think about it, but I know that like I have to work so hard to want to reinvent myself, to want to learn where I'm wrong, It's very, very hard. And so even I worry, because I can feel as I get older, something is changing. I won't say whether it's better or worse, I can just feel that I am changing. And so- As you age. As I age, 100%. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason I think people are obsessed with kids is they're just so doe-eyed, like they're optimistic about everything. And then over time you get all these weird things that reside on a layer of your subconscious that is hard Mm -hmm. to access. And- Mm -hmm. My wife has put it perfectly, and she has really encouraged me to focus on this because she says you've hardened over time. And I used to be very playful, and so now I try to like bring that back. I try to embody that playfulness. I try to really take time to be playful. But when I think about that, without conscious thought, it happened. It goes back to what we were saying about the virus. It's like the virus just. And the one time you got sick, eh, no big deal. You got better. But it did sort of take some number take of days off it. your life. And you just mm-hmm. enough of those, enough of those, enough of those. And it's all sort of accumulating in your subconscious. And so you have to fight against that. So anyway, back to death and end of life, <laughs> which I am. I am beyond obsessed with this whole idea, this whole notion. Um, so palliative care and where that's going I am really intrigued. I would love to know the people that you're seeing work in this space. How do we make death better? What does that mean?
1: So what I've learned from them, because they're really the experts, is when we go to talk to people, they say that they ask them questions like assuming that the person can still communicate. But they they ask questions like, what what brings meaning to your life right now? What do you enjoy? How would you want to die? How would you want your family to be around you when you die? Is there anything that's bringing you meaning to life to your life now while you're in the hospital that makes you want to be alive? You know, like really trying to understand the patient, because I think we project so much of our feelings about death onto the person. And we don't allow them to express themselves because like, they're the ones dying. You know, so there's that aspect of it. Then there's, and then people are, I mean, not everyone's simple. Some people are in denial. Some people are very angry. You know, some people. What kind of
0: different reactions have you seen? I'm super curious.
1: I've seen, I mean, look, I think that there are certain patients that are very much like, I've lived a good life. I'm ready. Like, I'm good. And, And it's not always that they have accomplished some incredible thing. I mean, sometimes they're just regular people. They're grandparents. They- have loving families, they have loving kids. Um, sometimes they've been through a lot and they're done. So they get to a point where they're like, I'm not doing this anymore. Like it's over.
0: Meaning their um, their actual breakdown of their body has been brutal?
1: Yes. Like I think that they've been through, let's say heart transplant and re-transplant or they've gotten a mechanical pump and that pump isn't working or they've been waiting for transplant for lungs for a long time and they're not the lungs aren't coming. And, you know, I think that the 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 stages of dying is or, or, or grieving you know kind of applies to all things that, that sort of you know anger denial acceptance you know there's the, all those stages and I and I think they're real like you see depression and then recovery you see you see people go through it and I think the family reactions are interesting I find that there's there's some families that are like whatever they want we just want her to be comfortable you know then there's these divided families where you can see that there's a lot of conflict in the family itself and who feels like they should make the decision and who feels like they shouldn't. And does that happen
0: when the person is still conscious or is that breakdown only when the person can't really,
1: I have seen the person who's dying, be very disengaged from the conversation and uh, one family member pushing a lot. And, um, It's not that they fight. If they fought back, it would be different. These are more people who are not speaking much that are very, I don't want to use the word catatonic, but very withdrawn, Um, don't have, you know, don't feel like engaging much in discussion because they're maybe depressed or exhausted Um, and that or they sort of have a relationship dynamic with their spouse or their partner or whoever their child where that person makes their decisions for them. Who tends to go the craziest?
0: You must like thin slice the life out of people. They walk Uh, in you like, oh, that person's (laughs) going to be a problem.
1: (laughs) No, but you know, it, it is funny. I feel like there are some people who in the beginning are very angry and they're angry that their loved one has had a lot of complications and sometimes complications happen. And, and those people our challenge and they don't trust the healthcare system or they haven't, they've had an experience with someone else and they don't trust the healthcare system. They think we're trying to kill off their loved one. I find it's often more painful when people are younger and it's, it's not all bad. You know, sometimes it's very moving and you see, you know, families want to do the best for their loved one, we help them through a process, like we meet with them on Monday, and we talk about what may or may not happen. And let's regroup in four days. And then four days, you regroup and you discuss this isn't happening, it's not getting better. And people come to terms over time. But I think the reason it takes so long, besides the death is inherently hard to accept that your loved one is dying, is that we come from a culture where people think, well, maybe if I transfer them to another hospital, they'll be able to save them. And it's like science, does, medicine doesn't keep you alive forever. You know, there are some conditions that you just can't treat. And sometimes mm-hmm. they're complicated and hard to explain. And that's hard for people to understand, especially when they don't have any science background.
0: Tell me, tell me more about the um, taking the body home or taking the person home. They pass away at home and then spending time with the body. Um, so I actually read this
1: really interesting article about this where, I think that there's a story that this happened in in this country with a man, I don't remember if he was in Seattle, where his wife died, she had had a long battle, and they kept her body uh, in the home, in bed, for, you know, family to come, for her children to be around, and sort of accept the time where you go through and realize that. Like, they're not in that body anymore. Whatever your religious or spiritual beliefs are, a dead person is very different from that person alive. I don't know if you've seen a dead person with your own eyes or seen someone you knew die and wa- looked at them at a wake, but, like, there is something very different <laughs> about someone who's dead. And that experience of seeing, like, okay, well, they're not – that. it's not like my loved one Joe or whoever, Mary, is there, but it's like they're gone
0: from I after. had – I've, I've been to several funerals where, um, somebody that I cared about had passed away. Um, most of that, though was when I was growing up. So my grandparents, I was around for three of them dying. Um, and then I recently had a former employee who I really cared about, um, pass away and went to his funeral. And all of that was heartbreaking. Um, but were it not for another experience, what which I will say in a second, I wouldn't understand what you're saying right now. But when my dog died, who was the first dog that my wife and I had, so we don't have kids, and I was traveling when he died. and But like I was on the flight home. Literally, I was um, texting back and forth with my wife. She was at the vet, and it was just all happening so fast. And so when I landed, I went straight to um, the vet. And... I needed to see his body. It was right. so weird, and yeah. literally up until that moment, I thought I—I I always tell people if uh, if you can predict something, it shouldn't be upsetting. So I was like, "Look, my parents are going to die. I get it." And I really felt detached from it. Like I've loved them. I'm, I'm so connected to them now. Mm-hmm. I've I've run the thought experiment, so I'm not like putting it off. This All I'm right. never going to be like, "Oh my God, they're mortal." Like that's right. so. i have it,
1: like a hundred percent.
0: And so that way, when it happens, I will be absolutely crestfallen, but I won't be like, oh my God, I didn't see it coming. And why didn't I call more? Like I won't be there. Right, right, but right. when my dog died, I realized that's all bullshit. I will only have an emotional response. I will be overwhelmed. I'll, I'll be beating my chest and wailing. It's like such a, it was this weird, deep seated need to, to see his body, to know that he wasn't there anymore. It was so weird. It, it even now, I can understand it in that I went through it. So I know what it feels like from the inside, but it's like hard to recapture that sense mm-hmm. when you're sort of emotionally sober and on the outside of it.
1: I mean, I think that what one thing that I'm taking also from what you're saying is how differently we can feel about things at different times. And then think about how we felt at that time, but not necessarily be able to feel that same way again. Like, or you think about someone who's very depressed, and they have this feeling like, you know, saying things like, well, what does it matter? We're all going to die anyway. And like, that sort of very fatalistic feeling that come like they that they sort of can see the truth that we're all missing, right? I've heard had people describe it to me like that, like I can, you know, you don't understand, but you know, like there's just no point in living because we're all going to die. Who cares if you win this award or you probably run that marathon, you're just dead in the end anyway. And then when you're not depressed, all of that goes away. And like, you don't see the world that way. You can't even relate to having that thought because you're preoccupied with training for the race and going to work and doing your job and seeing your kids because it doesn't like enter your b- brain space. And it's the same of, I think about grief in some ways it's like, it can be so overwhelming and yet somehow you move past it so that you're not in that intense moment forever. Right. And um, but we don't talk about death and dying at all. We don't talk about it to our kids. I mean, like did your parents ever have a real discussion with you about dying? Like, what do you think happens when you die? Where do you go? Do you think there's anything, you know?
0: No. And that's really interesting. I have quite my parents. I never got like an official birds and bees talk. I never had right. an official death and dying talk. Like when my grandparents died, um, I'm sure like knowing my mom, I'm sure she was like, hey, if you need to express your emotion, express it. Like she would have been super, super supportive. Right. But there was never like a, a, this is what death means, or this is how to process it or anything like that. Right. Um, and you're Do you right.
1: Do like, you know what your parents want to have done if they were sick? Have they told you? Have you had that conversation?
0: We, my so my sister is the keeper of that information, so yes, but I think it is my dad definitely does not want to be resuscitated. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure about my mom.
1: I mean, I think the other thing that's hard for people is like, what does that mean? Like, of course, you would want to be resuscitated from something that you could survive, right? So, like, if you're need CPR because you have a heart attack. And if someone does CPR and you are recovered from that, you'll be okay. Then I want CPR. But if I'm like, have end stage cancer and you try to resuscitate me for what? So that I can die two days later. That's a different kind of CPR. So that's like another thing that needs to be talked about, but it's, I don't know. I just get, I I feel like in, in cultures in the, in, you know, the East death can take on a different meaning. You know, this idea that like, we don't spend any time with a dead body. I get it kind of like it's dead. It's creepy body, but also like, is that normal? Like maybe it's normal to be with the dead body and to process the death of your loved one. I don't know. I don't know what I would want. I don't know if I would want, but I probably wouldn't want a dead body in my house for that long because it would be upsetting but that's because I've been raised to think that.
0: Mm. I'm super freaked out with anyone other than my wife. I'd be like, I would have my moment hundred percent. I would spend, you know, yeah. 20, 30 minutes. Wow. Like <laughs> yeah. like it, it's, you know, it's rough and, and embodying that sense of loss Um, Was very cathartic with my dog. And I I know that people will think that that's sort of weird. But for me, that was actually a very, very meaningful moment. Um, So it was wildly cathartic. So I would definitely take that time. But with my wife, dude, is taxidermy out? Like I am so attached to my wife that it's like to... anything like what can i do to hold on to that i worry that i would turn into that psychopath that like you know her withered <laughs> like, corpse is like in a chair in another room and you know i just i i can't let it go so uh i i probably need to do some thinking on that to not end up in a weird place but uh yeah, yeah.
1: well i think coronavirus has made everyone think about death a little bit because their fate they've lost people you know they've lost grandparents they've lost parents um and then There's there was this incredible fear of death, you know, that I think was so part of the quarantine was this fear of unnatural early death for everybody in a a thing that we couldn't control and didn't understand. And I think that that was scary. And I think that people are a little traumatized from that. Mm. And so I think this discussion of death is um, not so untimely just because I think it's something, you know, I think that's been on people's minds.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I think talking through it and figuring out what people want for themselves is also going to be really powerful. I know a lot of doctors have do not resuscitate. Where do you fall on the issue? What's your what's your guidance?
1: I mean, I think I would want to be resuscitated like we just discussed, like as long as I can go home and spend meaningful time with things that I do that I like. If I was in terrible pain that couldn't be changed or I had no meaning in my life anymore because I couldn't actually engage with the people I love, then I would probably be fine with DNR. But like, if I had a catastrophic event, and was in the hospital on a breathing tube, you know, out of it, I would want my family to, to stop care, I would not want them to keep me alive, you know, in a vegetative state in some nursing home for what's the point of that? I mean, there's all kinds of extremes. I think most people fall in the middle somewhere. But they come to the middle in different ways, you know, and um, there's always going to be the really extreme, like I refuse to let my person die, you know, or, Mm. you know, the opposite extreme where people kind of seem like they don't care. (laughs) But uh, you, you almost want them to be more involved in the care of their family member. That's less often. But I think for the most part, people are in the middle. I just think it's, it's hard. You know, I think that it's hard. And I think that Coronavirus has made everybody really afraid. And so those things together, you know, are hard. And then when you on top of it, you make it so that we can't have their loved ones come in to talk about dying, you know, and then two weeks after that happens, you know, there's protests with thousands of people on the street. And Joe Schmo is saying, you know, why couldn't I come in and say goodbye to my wife of 70 years? But these people are allowed to protest.
0: Oh, my God, we get that lose my mind.
1: Right. And I I've had really angry families say this is hypocr- this hypocrisy. Like, how can you tell us this when other people are allowed to be out? And we kind of had to stay on the line and just say, I mean, I think actually we just are opening up our visitation policy like tomorrow or something, but we had wow. for so long, we had to stay on the line because we were trying to protect other people in the hospital, other people that didn't have COVID in the hospital, you know, prevent transmission. I mean, you're walking into a place where the whole place has COVID, you know, there was concerns that anybody who came in could get it very easily, especially if they're at the bedside.
0: Yeah, I would lose my mind. Like speaking of, um, <laughs> if by the something way, happened I'm in wife. no
1: way saying that the protest shouldn't happen. I just no, want to clarify. No, no. Jesus, I'm I hope saying, nobody would
0: confuse that. Yeah. But it is yeah. it is blatantly a double standard. Whether it's a warranted double standard or not is a whole nother question. But you can imagine, like just thinking about losing my wife, like when you've shared seventy years with somebody. And this is that moment where they go like, fuck, there is no more like that. That is That's sort of that last. Yeah. They want to
1: hold their hand. Oh, are God. Saying no. And then you turn around and walk down the street and there's 10,000 people on the street. It feels painful.
0: Yeah. I-, I can see people really losing their mind without in any way, shape or form diminishing the power of the protest. It's like I would exactly. lose my mind. Yeah. Right. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me, dude. This was so much fun. Like, where can people find you um, if they want to connect?
1: Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Dr. Jen Haith, uh, J-E-N-N-H-A-Y-T-H-E. And my Instagram is the same, Dr. Jen Haith.
0: Amazing. Well, thank you again for joining me. This was wonderful. I really, really enjoyed that conversation. It's fantastic. That
1: was fun. Take care, okay? You
0: got it. All right, everybody. Subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. If you want to finally take control of your health and stop struggling with a lack of focus, feeling sluggish, and just not being your best, then you need to fulfill all the nutritional needs your body has every single day. You can do that easily and simply with AG1. If you're a longtime listener, you might know I've been supporting AG1 for many years. That's because AG1 is a foundational nutritional supplement. And you guys know me. I do not normally eat supplements. AG1 is basically it. It is a supplement that truly supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. And what I like is that they're basically grounding up real vegetables. It is about as close to eating the real thing as you're going to get. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. AG1 supports your whole body with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food source nutrients in every serving to support optimal health of your brain, body, and gut. So if you wanna take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin d 3 k 2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Click the link in the show notes or just go to drinkag1.com slash impact. That's drinkag1, the number com slash impact. Check it out. What's up, guys? If there's something going on with your body that you just can't quite figure out what it's coming from, I'm gonna bet that the problem has something to do with your gut health. So what can you do to feel better? Well, everybody's body is different and that's why our sponsor Viome uses an at-home gut intelligence test to analyze your microbiome. Then they provide you with a personalized pre and probiotic formula that can help restore balance to your body. They also recommend what foods you should eat and which ones you shouldn't eat based on your test results. I've had the founder of Viome, Naveen Jain, on the show several times, and he always has incredible updates about the science linking your microbiome to the rest of your health. And as you guys know, with everything that Lisa went through, we know firsthand that your gut health, if you fix that, you're going to solve so many other problems in your life. Go to triviome.com slash impact and use code impact to get 20% off your first three months and free shipping. All right, that's T-R-Y-V-I-O-M-E.com slash impact with the code impact for 20% off your first three months and free shipping.